Hey, good morning, Trinity Church. How are you guys? Ruth chapter 3. One of the great privileges that my wife and I have in working with youth and young adults is seeing relationships start and seeing, you know, love, uh, young early love and uh, young guys and girls discover uh, that they are interested in one another. And it's always fun at the beginning as love is blossoming and eventually, you know, a lot of times what happens is that guy is like, he likes her or she likes him and one of them sometimes is oblivious and um, it's always fun and then, you know, they finally discover that they like each other and then they go out on a date and then that relationship is going and then eventually that relationship uh, turns into a proposal and engagement and then eventually culminates in marriage and a family. It's always fun, like I said, at the beginning because uh, they're always like making googly eyes at each other. And uh, I remember I was, a, I was a high school teacher, and I remember uh, this like it was yesterday. We would have nutrition break, and uh, as a teacher, we were asked to go outside and just kind of monitor the hallways and, you know, make sure students were behaving and, uh, you know, not doing anything bad or stuff like that. And so I would go outside, and I would just kind of hang out and talk with students and, you know, how's your day? We would talk sports and things like that. I'll never forget this one 10th grade girl. She was making googly eyes at this uh, guy who was in a grade higher than her. And they didn't really ever hang out. They were in different social uh, circles. They didn't really, you know, um, rub shoulders, so to speak. And I'll never forget, she was just like making googly eyes. And then, you know, she's like looking at him. And then she turns to me and I'm like looking at her and she turns bright red. And I'm like, oh, so how long you been crushing on him for? And she gets even more red, I mean like tomato red. And um, flash forward six years last night, uh, this young man asked that young woman to marry her. Right, that's what I said. It's so cool. And so what we did, my wife and I, we were invited uh, to watch him ask her for her hand in marriage. It was so sweet. He is not uh, a construction guy. He is, he's, um, yeah, he's not a visionary. He's just very, yeah, he's a very simple guy. He actually had his dad help him build like this little structure with lights and roses everywhere. And then all of his friends and uh, all of his family, we got to sit inside while it was being live streamed, and we got to watch him ask her to marry him. It was really awesome to be a part of that and to get to witness that. There's something special when somebody invites you into their life uh, to witness something so special in their life, isn't it? That's where we're at today in the book of Ruth. We find ourselves in chapter three, right in the middle of this budding relationship between Ruth and Boaz that will ultimately culminate in a very unusual and risky marriage proposal. So for you romantics in the church today, you're gonna love this chapter. For those of you who are not romantics, there's still something for you too. So let's pray and then we'll jump uh, into Ruth chapter three. Father. Thank you for your divinely inspired word. Thank you, Father, for this very short, yet very powerful book of Ruth. Just 85 verses, and yet, Lord, uh, every verse is meaningful, it's impactful, and it's telling a greater story. 
It's telling this amazing story of your sovereign, providential care and redemptive purposes and plan and how you are the faithful, loyal, loving God who always is involved in our lives. That there's not one detail unturned or happening, Lord, that you are not acquainted with nor allowing or purposing ultimately for our good and your glory. And so, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us this morning uh, through this chapter. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. So we are in the book of Ruth, starting in Ruth chapter three, verse one. It says, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, shouldn't I find rest for you so that you will be taken care of? In other words, she's saying to her daughter-in-law, Ruth, shouldn't I find you a husband and a home so that you will be taken care of, so that he will provide for you, he will protect you, he will take care of you. And I have a plan, verse two. Isn't Boaz our relative? Haven't you been working with his female servant? This evening, Boaz will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. The threshing floor was this place, it was mostly on a hill where there would be a wind and they would take a winnowing fork and they would separate the chaff, which is the uh, inedible part of the wheat, and then the wheat would fall to the ground. And so uh, it was a place of separating the chaff from the wheat. And she says, hey, he's gonna be there winnowing the barley at the threshing floor. It's gonna be a great place for the plan to ask him to marry you. Look at verse three. Here's what you need to do, my young daughter-in-law. First of all, you need to wash. That's a good thing, wash. Remember, she had been working in the field in the heat of the day, and she had been uh, gleaning the, the stalks of grain that had been falling on purpose because Boaz had made sure that she was getting food and she was being taken care of. And so she had been working, and so she says, you know what, before you go and you approach this man, wash, it's a good thing. Not only that, but put on perfumed oil. So put on some smell good and wear your best clothes. Most Bible scholars believe that what she is saying here is it's time to take off those clothes of mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, those mourning clothes that you would wear as a widow to say, hey, listen, I'm no longer a widow and I'm no longer uh, just lamenting my husband's death, but I'm available now. And so put on your clothes, your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor, but don't let the man know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, notice the place where he's lying, go in and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will explain to you what you should do. So Ruth said to her, I will do everything you say. So Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, hatches the plan. Can't you just imagine it? Ruth comes in from the field. Where have you been? I've been in Boaz's field. Oh my goodness, Boaz, Boaz, he is our family redeemer. And we'll talk about that in a second. And he's our kinsman redeemer. And you know what? I think it's time, my young daughter-in-law, to find you a man. And they're sitting there on the couch and she puts her arm around her. Honey, this is what you need to do. First of all, wash. You know, put on some smelling perfume. Change your clothes. Let him know that, you know, you are now available to, to marry. And go to the threshing floor. And what you're going to do is you're going to uncover his feet. And 
you're going to wait until he explains what you should do. Now, it's interesting. Look at verse 2. She has this plan to find her daughter-in-law, a husband, and it happens to be this guy, Boaz. And notice what she says, that Boaz is a relative. It wasn't like she was on a dating app and she was like, swipe right, swipe right, swipe left, swipe right, swipe. Boaz, that is the one. Why Boaz? That should be the question we should be asking. Why Boaz? Because I don't know how many of you have single friends and you're like, you know what? Have you considered one of your relatives? That just makes for a good catch. What in the world is happening here? Well, in verse 2, it says he was a relative, but in Ruth chapter 2, verse 20, it tells us he was actually one of Naomi's family redeemers or rescuers. And that was very important culturally. You see, the family redeemer in Hebrew, it's this word goel, goel, G-O-E-L. The goel had a very important role and responsibility in Jewish society. The goel, or as some of your translations have it, the kinsman redeemer or the family redeemer, he had four big important responsibilities within the family structure. First of all, the kinsman redeemer, he was responsible to buy a fellow Israelite out of slavery. So if a fellow Israelite fell out of slavery, if a cousin of yours fell out of slavery and you had the money and you were able to, you would purchase that person so he didn't have to be a slave to somebody else. Secondly, the kinsman redeemer, he was to be the avenger of blood to make sure that the murderer of a family member was answered to for the crime. Thirdly, according to Leviticus 25, 25, he was responsible to buy back family land, listen to this, that had been lost. And then fourthly, fourthly, the kinsman redeemer, he was responsible to carry on the family name by marrying a childless, childless widow. This was also call, called the Leveret marriage. And this is what is applicable here in the book of Ruth. When Naomi says, and she puts her arm around her daughter-in-law, and she says, hey, honey, Boaz, he makes a good catch. It's because she knows that he is the family's goel. He is somebody who could rescue, and he is one who could save. He is one that can provide a child so that the name of Ruth and Naomi's husband does not die out in the nation of Israel. The Goel, the family redeemer, he was a savior of sorts, a rescuer to save that which was lost and dying. And so that was the heart behind Naomi's plan, was to see that her daughter-in-law would marry the appropriate man to continue the lineage in their family and then also to redeem and to rescue property, as chapter four says, that ultimately would be sold. So there was purpose and strategy behind this plan. This wasn't just like, mm, this one. It was strategic and it was purposeful to choose Boaz. So that's the plan. Let's get you hitched, young lady. Chapter three, verses six through 11, the proposal. So she went down to the threshing floor and she did everything her mother-in-law 
had charged her to do. After Boaz had ate and he had drank and he was in good spirits, he went to lie down at the end of the pile of barley. And Ruth came in secretly and she uncovered his feet and she laid down. Just real quickly, she lays down at his feet, which was the place where the servants would lay at the feet of their masters. There are some people who believe that what Ruth was doing was um, a little more risque, if you will, a little more sensual, but there's nothing sensual or sexual about what she is doing here by going and laying down at his feet and uncovering his feet. There's nothing risque. In fact, Boaz will later comment that Ruth was not a shady lady, but that she was a woman of noble and virtuous character. So she goes and she uncovers his feet. And uh, I love this. At midnight, Boaz was startled. Well, yeah, I was winnowing barley. I was full. I had my stomach full. I was working. I was good. I was sleeping, sound asleep. All of a sudden, my feet get a little bit cold. And all of a sudden, there's a woman at my feet. And he says, who are you? Verse 9, I am Ruth, your servant, she replied. Take me under your wing, or as some of your translations might have it, spread your garment over me. For you are a family redeemer. You are our Goel. And then he said, you know what? May Yahweh, may the Lord bless you, my daughter. You have shown more kindness now than before because you have not pursued younger men, whether rich or poor. This verse, as well as other verses, uh, indicate that Boaz was a significant, uh, significantly older than Ruth was. We don't know how much, but he was definitely older than she was. And he says here, verse 11, Now don't be afraid, my daughter. I will do for you whatever you say, since all the people in my town, look at this, know that you are a woman of noble character. As Doug shared a couple weeks ago in the Jewish Bible, the book of Ruth follows the book of Proverbs. And Proverbs ends with, with chapter 31, which is this beautiful description of a virtuous and noble woman. And it's as if uh, the writers of the scripture are saying, you wanna know what a virtuous and noble woman is like? Look at Ruth. And that's exactly what Boaz said. You are a virtuous, noble woman. In verse, um, verse eight and nine, when she says here to take me under your wing or to spread your garment over me, this is very rich symbolic language of Ruth proposing and asking Boaz to marry her. It's as if you could picture it. She's like, ring me, marry me. But she's doing it in a very culturally understandable way. In fact, that Boaz knows it and he says, yeah, I'll do whatever you have to say, my daughter. He, she is asking for Boaz to fulfill the role and the responsibility of the kinsman redeemer and to enter into the covenant of marriage with her. This is so unusual and this is so risky. It's unusual because it's a woman in this time asking for the man's hand in marriage, which generally didn't happen in that culture. And it was also risky because she was there at the threshing floor, which was known to be a place that was highly sexualized. And it was a pretty uh, crazy place because the men, after uh, gleaning the harvest, they would be celebrating and they would be full of good spirits, if you will. 
And so this was a very risky place for her to be, and it was very unusual for her to be proposing. But what is she doing? She's trusting in her mother-in-law, and more importantly, she is trusting in the Lord to watch out for her, to protect her, and to be responsible for her. So she asks Boaz, Boaz, will you marry me? And so there it is. And he says, I would love to marry you, but, but there's a caveat. I have to laugh at this. Um, it took me three times to get my wife to say yes to marry me. <laughs> Not because she said no two previous times. The first time I went to go ask my wife's hand in marriage, it was raining cats and dogs, it was Thanksgiving, and we were like an hour and a half, two hours late to the family meal where I was gonna like propose to her. Inevitably, we get into this monstrous fight, and on the way, on the way there, I know, I'm sorry, um, on the way there, I have the ring in my pocket, and she like goes to hold my hand to like affirm her love and commitment to me, and I kind of like swipe it away. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you don't want to hold my hand. It's not that. I actually have a ring to put on your hand. And the second time, it was Christmas Eve, and, you know, I'm all about, like, the sentimental, like, holiday proposal. Um, and so uh, I was working at a church at the time. They had multiple Christmas Eve services, and uh, we went to Christmas Eve service, and then she went back to my place for food and to hang out until I got there. And <laughs> Uh, and I was like, okay, Christmas Eve, that'll be great. I get there, she had eaten, I got home late. She had eaten, she had fallen asleep. And I'm like, okay, that's not gonna go well. <laughs> so she goes home, the next day we hang out Christmas Day and then finally I was like, you know what, this is not gonna be perfect at all. So like literally in the hallway of the house, like at her house, like she turns around and like there I am. Marry me. There's, there is a problem in Proposing here, look at verses 12 through 18. Verse 12, it says, yes, it is true that I am a family redeemer. It's true, I can marry you, I would love to marry you, but there's a redeemer closer than I am. Cliffhanger, dun, 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 dun. But Ruth, stay here tonight and in the morning, if he wants to redeem you, if he wants to fulfill the obligation of the Goel, that's good, let him redeem you. But if he does not want to redeem you as the Lord lives, I will. I could just say, yes, I will. Remember, he's a little older, he's single. He had been waiting. Now his, his woman had come. Now lie down until the morning. And so she lay down at his feet until morning, but got up while it was still dark. And Boaz said, don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. He wants to protect her integrity, he wants to make sure that no one thought something inappropriate took place. He didn't want anyone to think that uh, he was sidestepping the other family redeemer. And so he says, listen, out of protection for her and her name and the whole, um, the whole way of what we do things as a kinsman redeemer, don't tell anyone. And he told, he told Ruth, I tell you what, bring the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. And when she held it out, he shoveled six measures of barley into her shawl. It was like a lot of barley. And she went into the town and she went to her mother-in-law, Naomi. You could just imagine Naomi waiting up all night. How did it go? How did it go? How did it go? How did it go? Can't wait. Can't wait. She's checking Instagram. She's looking for the photos. She's like, you know, waiting for the social media to catch it. How did it go? What happened, my daughter? 
And Ruth told her everything that Boaz the man had done for her. And she said, he gave me the six, these six measures of barley because he said, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. There's a little irony in that phrase. Remember how in chapter one, it says Naomi said of herself, she came back empty-handed. And God was filling her hands once again. God was at work in her life. Naomi said to her, my daughter, wait, wait until you find out how things go, for he will not rest unless he resolves this today. So, the plan, the proposal, the problem. What is the point? What is the point? There's a lot that we could unpack from this chapter, and there's a lot that we could unpack from the book of Ruth, but there is one big takeaway that I want to draw your attention to this morning, and that is finding rest in the providence of God. Finding rest in the providence of God. Remember in chapter one, when we first saw Naomi? Her name, Naomi, means pleasant. But when she had come back with her daughters-in-law to Bethlehem, with Ruth, her daughter-in-law, excuse me, to Bethlehem, she says, listen, don't call me pleasant. Don't call me Naomi. Call me what? Mara. Call me bitter. And why does she say that? Because as far as her life was concerned, God's hand had been against her. He had opposed her. And she was bitter because of life's circumstances that had befallen her. Remember, she had gone down from Bethlehem to Moab to a foreign place with foreign people where they worship these foreign gods. They even would sacrifice their children to these gods. And she goes there and her husband dies. And ultimately, 10 years later, her two sons die. And she's there left in chapter one as a widow in a foreign land with foreign people with two foreign daughter-in-laws. And so finally she hears there's grain in Israel that God had visited his people, so she decides, I'm gonna take that trek back to Israel, back to Bethlehem. And she goes there and she tells her daughters-in-law, listen, you guys need to go back home to your people, to your gods and to your families because this is a hopeless situation for me. In chapter one, she says, even if I was able to have a son, you wouldn't be able to wait for them to marry them and you won't be able to be provided for and protected by a son of mine. It is a hopeless situation, she says. Of course, Ruth, she says, no, I'm not turning back to go back to my people. I'm gonna go where you go. I'm gonna stay where you stay. I will die where you die. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. This outsider now becomes an insider, this woman who was a Gentile now worships the God of Israel, Yahweh. But it's interesting, isn't it? In chapter one, that was her heart and her lament and her, her mourning. But in chapter three, we see an entirely different Naomi, don't we? She's an entirely different person. There's this hope that has been kindled in her life and in her heart as she's realized that God has not forsaken her as she first thought, that God's hand was not against her as she had originally stated, but that he actually was showing hased, he was showing loyal love to both her, to her deceased family members, 
and to Ruth. She's connecting the dots that God has been with her all along, that he had not left her, he had not forsaken her, and that he had providentially led her and Ruth into the field of their kinsman redeemer. She's moved from hopeless to hopeful, seeing that God has been at work in the details of her life, as difficult as they have been the whole time. As Christians, we call this the providence of God. The providence of God. What is God's providence? It is God's all-wise, all-loving, direct care and provision for us. And it's often seen and experienced in very unusual and unforeseen ways. Another way of describing or defining God's providence is God's invisible hand at work in all of the details of our lives. It's those things that make us say, total God story, crazy story. Can I tell you a crazy story? I just lost my job and then one day I'm in, you know, uh, I'm at Starbucks and I hear somebody saying how they're looking for a business salesperson. I go, oh my, hey, you know what, where do I apply? Total God story, crazy providence. Hey, you know what? I was dating that guy, I was dating that girl for three or four years, and then all of, a th- all of a sudden things went south, and things just flickered out and died out, and she broke my heart, he broke my heart, but man, I'm really glad that that relationship didn't work, because man, God has given me someone so much better, God's providence. I can't believe that this is where we're going to live at, on this street next to these people. And those people are saying, I can't believe we have to live next to these people. And then all of a sudden you start talking to your neighbors and you start telling them about your faith in Jesus and then ultimately the Lord uses you to lead them to Jesus. Providence. God working in the details of your life even when you don't understand it or see it. Total God story. Isn't it a total God story that here's this woman, Ruth, who comes to faith in Yahweh and the God of Israel. She comes back to Israel with her mother-in-law and it just so happens that they land in the field of Boaz, who just so happens to be the family redeemer. And he just so happens to be single. Now I'm sure all of his life he was like, Lord, why do I not have a woman? Some of you might be saying, Lord, why do I not have a woman? Why do I not have a man? Why am I not married yet? Why am I still single? And then all of a sudden, this woman shows up in his field, and he's like, who is this? Who is that? Okay. And he takes, uh, he takes to her and shows her unusual kindness and He blesses her and he protects her and he provides for her. And then this woman proposes to him and he wants to, but again, there's the other family redeemer. Again, all providence. That's ultimately what the book of Ruth is all about. That even in the darkest and most painstaking moments of our lives, God is meticulously behind the scenes and at work to bring his good out of his faithful love to his people. That God is at work. 
as Christians, we understand there's no such thing as coincidence. There's no such thing as fate. But we understand and we rest in the fact that God is sovereignly, providentially, meticulously involved and working behind the scenes of everything in our life for our good and ultimately for his glory. Scripture is replete with this all over. All over the pages of Scripture do we see that God is at work and he is providential over the lives of his children. You recall the story of Joseph in Genesis. He had been betrayed by his brothers. He had been sold into slavery. He had been falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. He had been forsaken by two men he had interpreted dreams for. He was left to rot and to die in prison and then Pharaoh just so happens to have a dream which nobody could interpret. And what happens? Joseph's like, I got that, I can interpret that because there is a God who could interpret that and he will give you the, the understanding of the dream. And what happens? He gives Pharaoh the, interpreter, the interpretation of the dream and he ends up rising from the pit to the palace to being second in place in all over Egypt. Genesis 45, after his brothers come to him, in Genesis 45, verses five through seven, what does Joseph say? He says, and now brothers, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Now for two years there will be famine in the land, and for the next five years there will be no plowing or reaping, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. And then in Genesis 50, verse 20, he says, you brothers intended to harm me, but listen to this, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Joseph is like, listen, God's hand has been in all of this the entire time. Don't you get that? Like God has been at work the entire time, even through all the, hard things and all the difficult things and all of the things that would leave us questioning. God has been involved the whole time. Why? God sent me here to preserve you and he sent me to preserve his redemptive plan and purposes to save you guys as the family and the chosen people of God. In Matthew 6, 25 through 34, 34 Jesus says this, don't worry about your life. Anyone have some worries about their lives today in here? If I were to pass around the mic, any worries? We'd be here for a while, wouldn't we? Jesus says, don't worry about your life. Why? Well, because God the Father cares for you. God the Father cares for you. Don't you realize you have a dad in heaven who cares for you? Deeply and passionately, committedly, he cares for you. You are, are of more value to him than the birds he feeds and the fields he closed with flowers and he promises, listen, he promises to take care of his children and their needs, so don't worry, he's got you. Romans 8, 28, probably one of the most well-known verses that speak of God's providential sovereign care and involvement in the lives of his children. Romans 8, 28 says this, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. Paul says, listen, if you are a child of God, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, you can know that God is working all things out for good. 
all things out for good. And not only for our good, but according to his purposes. Probably the greatest illustration of God's providence in scriptures is through the crucifixion of Jesus. We see all different people with different varying levels of powers, with different standing in the societal structure, and we see them all at work with one common goal and purpose, which was to see that Jesus would be crucified on a Roman cross. We see the Pharisees, we see the Sadducees, we see the Romans, we see Satan himself, we see Judas, we see Pilate, all with different motives and agendas, but with one goal, crucify Jesus. And here's what's crazy about it. They do this not apart from God's watchful eye or arm, but all in according to God's redemptive plan of salvation. Again, God completely involved in every detail to bring about his plan and his purposes. Listen, I know that in this room there are varying degrees of angst. There are varying degrees of stress and anxiety. There are varying degrees of worry and fear. But I believe God is telling us that he wants us to come to him and to trust in his providential care for our lives. God's providence should be a pillow to our weary head to assure us and help us to rest that, listen, God is for us. He is with us. He is working every detail out in spite of us, in spite of others, and whatever is happening in the world. So, question for you guys. Where do you need to be reminded of God's providence in your life today? Where do you need to be reminded of God's providence in your life today? Where do you need to be reminded that God is wisely, lovingly, lovingly meticulously involved and working every detail out in your life as he promises and ultimately, he's doing it in a way that will be for your good and for his glory and purposes. Where do you need that reminder today? Maybe it's in a broken marriage. Maybe things have gone sideways with you and your spouse. And you're trying all kinds of ways to fix it and mend it and to restore it. By the way, I'm not saying don't do those things. Be proactive as Naomi was, right? She saw God's providence, she was still proactive. Be proactive, but trust and rest in the providence of God. God, you're gonna work it out. I don't understand how you're gonna do it. I don't know how, in which way. I don't know when you're gonna do it. I don't know if it's gonna be in two days from now, two hours from now, two months from now. I don't know when or how, Lord but I'm gonna rest, I'm gonna trust in your providence and your care for me in my life and for my spouse's life. Maybe for some of you, it's with your kids, you need to trust in God's providence for them. Maybe it's with school stuff, if you're a high school student, young adult. I'm so glad God closed doors to certain schools and led me to the schools that he ended up having me in. Maybe it's in your singleness you need to trust God even with that and trust in his providence, trust in his care, trust in his commitment to do good for you in the long run. Maybe it's 
It's childlessness. Maybe you and your spouse are married and you really want a child and for some reason God has not seen fit to open the womb yet. God, I'm gonna trust in your providential care and concern for my life. Maybe it's death of a loved one and failing health, I don't know. But I want to assure you based on the authority of scripture, based upon God's character and his promises, that God is intricately involved in everything that's happening in your life right now, everything. And so like Naomi, like Ruth, you respond with trusting. You respond by trusting, okay, God, I don't know what's gonna happen, I, but I'm gonna trust you. You're gonna work it out. I don't know how it's gonna happen. It's, it's often in unusual ways, but you're gonna work it out. You're gonna do it in such a way, Lord, that ultimately people are gonna say, total God thing, and God will get the glory in it all. So here's my word to you this morning, Trinity Church. Because of the providential care of our Father, we can rest. We do not have to fret at whatever circumstances and situations are unfolding in our lives. We can entrust ourselves to the loving, providential care of the Lord. He's got you. He's got you. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for the book of Ruth. I thank you how it is such a beautiful, beautiful picture of your providential sovereign care over the lives of those who are your people. I love, Father, how it just points to the truth that you are intricately, meticulously involved in every fine detail of our lives, even the hard things, Lord, even the things that break our heart and even the things that break your heart. But Father, because you are all wise, because you are all loving, because of your loyal said love, your faithful kindness, Lord, we could, we could rest. We don't have to fret, we don't have to worry. We could simply trust that you are a good and that you're working all things out for our good and ultimately for your glory. And so Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters today. Would you give them rest for their weary souls? I love the invitation Jesus gives in Matthew's gospel. Let all of you who are weary and heavy, or heavy burdened come to me for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me and you will find rest for your souls. And so, Father, I pray that you will give rest to our weary souls today and to trust that you are good and you're working it all out for good. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.